You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just as we were about to start on the charge over the wheat field, a stray ball hit me on the index finger as I was holding up my sword and carried off the cap of my finger. I did not think much of it at the time. Then as they fired the third volley, I got another in the left arm, below the elbow, that nearly knocked me down. There's not much left of the arm now. I've had thirteen pieces of bone taken from it since. A few minutes after, I was struck in the head and knocked senseless for a moment, but the ball came sideways, passing out and carrying away a piece of the skull, where you may see the mark. That side of my face was covered with blood, and the eye blinded by the shot. I got up again to do what I could, and pretty soon caught it once more. This time a mini-ball struck me in the neck. It passed directly between the artery and the windpipe, forcing them apart, but by the greatest wonder, did not cut either. The ball lodged and flattened against the base of my skull. I had the most peculiar sensation when that shot struck me. There was a sharp pain, and then my head seemed to swell as big as a basket. I kept up a little longer when I received a settler in the shape of another ball. It struck me in the left leg above the knee, in the very center of the leg. I fell over in the wheat, done for, and the rebels passed beyond me after our troops. Most of our boys boys were killed, wounded, or taken prisoners then. It was about six o'clock when I fell on Saturday night, and I was not taken up until Monday afternoon. Lieutenant William P. Warren, 28th New York, Crawford's Brigade. We took position in the road near the corner of an open field with our two parrot guns and one gun of Carpenter's Battery, with each gun's horses and limber off on its left among the trees. Both Captain Joe Carpenter and his brother John, who was his first lieutenant, were with that gun, as was their custom when any one of their guns went into action. We soon let the enemy know where we were, and they replied promptly, getting our range in a few rounds. General Winder, commander of our brigade, dismounted, and in his shirt sleeves had taken his stand a few paces to the left of my gun, and with his field glass was intently observing the progress of the battle. We had been engaged less than fifteen minutes when Captain Carpenter was struck in the head by a piece of shell, from which, lingering a few weeks, he died. Between my gun and limber, where General Winder stood, was a constant stream of shells tearing through the trees and bursting close by. While the enemy's guns were changing their position, he gave some directions, which we could not hear for the surrounding noise. I, being nearest, turned, and walking toward him, asked what he had said. As he put his hand to his mouth to repeat the remark, a shell passed through his side and arm, tearing them fearfully. He fell straight back at full length and lay quivering on the ground. 
He had issued strict orders that morning that no one except those detailed for the purpose should leave his post to carry off the wounded, in obedience to which I turned to the gun and went to work. He was soon carried off, however, and died a few hours later. Private Edward A. Moore, Rockbridge Artillery. everyone. Welcome to episode 172 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last episode, we set the stage for the Battle of Cedar Mountain, which took place on August 9, 1862. The Battle of Cedar Mountain, which took place about 10 miles south of Culpeper, Virginia, isn't very well known, but it's generally considered the beginning of the campaign that culminated in the next major battle on the podcast timeline, the Battle of Second Manassas. Right. Uh, So as you guys will recall, after the Seven Days Battles and in the aftermath of George McClellan's failed Peninsula Campaign, Robert E. Lee was forced to deal with a complex, high-stakes strategic challenge posed by the Army of the Potomac and John Pope's Army of Virginia. The Army of the Potomac was hunkered down at Harrison's Landing, but it still represented a threat to Richmond. Meanwhile, a new Union threat in northern Virginia emerged with the formation of John Pope's new command, which had been stitched together from the three formations that Stonewall Jackson had beaten up in his Valley Campaign. Robert E. Lee was finally forced to move to deal with that new Union army when Pope's forces started to stir and threaten some important railroad lines in central Virginia, including Richmond's vital rail link to the Shenandoah Valley. At first, though, because he still needed to keep a watchful eye on McClellan, Lee could only afford to send Stonewall Jackson, with perhaps 14,000 men, to face Pope. As you guys know, one of the things that was happening on the Union side was the debate over just what to do about the Army of the Potomac. But finally, in early August, McClellan was ordered to withdraw from the peninsula and take his army to join Pope. The Army of the Potomac was to march down to Fort Monroe at the tip of the peninsula, embark on transports, which would take it up Chesapeake Bay and up the Potomac, where it would disembark, then march west to join Pope. The federal strategy now was to form a sort of 150,000-strong super army, which would steamroll south from northern Virginia, crush Lee, and capture Richmond. But, until the Army of the Potomac arrived, Pope was basically to just hold the line in northern Virginia, along the Rapidan and Rappahannock rivers. By July 27th, though McClellan hadn't yet begun his withdrawal from the peninsula, Robert E. Lee felt confident enough in Little Mac's essential timidity that he sent Stonewall Jackson some reinforcements in the form of A.P. Hill's Light Division and a brigade of Louisianans. As y'all recall, Jackson had taken up a position at Gordonsville where he could cover the railroad lines threatened by the Federals. However, he hadn't enough men to attack Pope directly. But A.P. Hill's arrival changed everything. 
With roughly 22,000 men, Stonewall now had the means and Robert E. Lee's permission to attack at least a portion of Pope's command if the circumstances were favorable. And on August 7th, Stonewall learned that if he moved quickly, the circumstances would indeed be favorable for him to strike a part of Pope's army. The Army of Virginia's Second Corps, commanded by Jackson's old adversary from the Shenandoah Valley, Nathaniel Banks, was dangling out beyond the rest of Pope's force at Culpeper, in the V of land formed by the Rappahannock to the north and the Rapidan to the south. Stonewall set his command in motion that very day, August 7th. His men would march to Orange Courthouse, cross the Rapidan the next day, and attack the Yankees while Banks and his 11,000-man force were dangling alone at Culpeper. It is a sad thing to refer to, yet glancing along the line, the sight was ludicrous in the extreme. All were excited and were loading and firing in every conceivable way. Some were standing, but most were kneeling or lying down. Some were astraddle their pieces and were ramming the charge totally regardless of the rules on that point. Many had poured their cartridges upon the ground and were pedaling out the lead with more speed than accuracy, I fear. We all took this occasion to swear and jibe our friends in gray to the best of our ability. So with the din of musketry and the one common yell of friend and foe, it seemed as if bedlam was loose. The behavior of those who were hit appeared most singular, and as there were so many of them, it looked as if we had a crowd of howling dervishes dancing around and kicking in our ranks. The bullet often knocks over the man it hits, and rarely fails by its force alone to disturb his equilibrium. Then the shock, whether painful or not, causes a sudden jump or shudder. Now as every man, with hardly an exception, was either killed, wounded, hit in his clothes, hit by spent balls, or jostled by his wounded comrades, it follows that we had a wonderful exhibition. Some reeled round and round. Others threw up their arms and fell over backward. Others went plunging backward, trying to regain their balance. A few fell to the front, but the force of the bullet generally prevented this, except where it struck low down and apparently knocked the soldier's feet from under him. Many dropped their musket and seized the wounded part with both hands. The enemy were armed with almost every kind of rifle or musket, and as their front exceeded ours three times, we were under a crossfire almost from the first. The various tunes sung by their balls we shall never forget. In a moment, when curiosity got the better of fear, I took notice of this, and made a record of it in my diary a day or two afterward. The fierce zip of the swift mini-bullet was not prominent by comparison, though there were enough of them certainly. The main sound, or the air of the tune, if I may be allowed the expression, was produced by the singing of slow, round balls and buckshot fired from a smoothbore, which do not cut or tear the air as the creased ball does. Each bullet, according to its kind, size, rate of speed, and nearness to the ear, made a different sound. They seemed to be going past in sheets, all around and above us. Lieutenant John M. Gould, 10th Maine, Crawford's Brigade. 
I was watching General Jackson very closely. He seemed to be getting a little nervous. At length, he said, "There's some hard work being done over there." At the same time, he drew a blank book from a little satchel, wrote a few lines, tore out the leaf, handed it to a courier, gave him some instructions, and away the courier dashed at the top of his speed. One of his staff then called his attention to a line of Yankee infantry just entering the wheat field on the left of the road and moving in the direction of the firing, which had now become a continuous roar with very little intermission. The general wrote another dispatch, handed it to a courier, gave him some directions, and said, "Lose no time," as the courier rode away. Then, listening a moment, said, "That firing is very heavy." The roar of battle seemed to be getting nearer. The general was sitting with his right leg thrown over the pommel of his saddle. Without a word, he dropped his leg, pressed his cap on his head, tightened the strap under his chin. This was all done in almost a second of time. Without a word, he wheeled his horse toward the road, pressed the spurs to his flanks, and started at a rate of speed which threatened to leave us far in the rear. His staff was soon close at his heels, with a half dozen of us couriers bringing up the rear. The general leaped his horse over the fence at the road, which had been partly thrown down. Here he halted a second and ordered some artillery to the rear, which General Winder had ordered placed in position, but which was now in great danger of being captured. Jackson then leaped his horse over the fence on the opposite side of the road into the woods and had not gone fifty yards when he met his men falling back in considerable disorder. It was here that it has been said that Jackson drew his sword for the first time during the war and called on his men to rally and follow him. That Jackson would lead them. This may all be true, but how he could have been heard is a mystery to me. The rattle of musketry, the shouting, cheering, and yelling was deafening. The smoke of battle and the thick foliage on the timber made it impossible to see but a short distance. The leaves and small limbs were falling thick, and the bark from the timber flying in every direction, often striking a person in the face, leading him to believe he had run into a load of buckshot or something worse. It appeared for a few moments as though we had struck a full-grown tornado loaded with thunder and lightning. This was the most hair-raising fix I had ever struck. When I began to realize the condition of affairs, I found that I had lost the general, or the general had lost one of his couriers. The confusion and noise was terrible and to me frightful. For a few moments, I was almost paralyzed. Lieutenant John M. Blue, Seventeenth Virginia Cavalry Battalion, Robertson's Brigade. If Stonewall Jackson was to meet and defeat Nathaniel Banks at Culpeper before the rest of John Pope's command could come up, he had to push his men forward right away and then move quickly. Stonewall had his troops under way by 5 p.m. on August 7th, and his plan was to cross the Rapidan early on the 8th and then continue north towards Culpeper, where he anticipated attacking Banks on the 9th. However, the Confederates' march on August eighth was plagued not only by intense heat, but also by confusion and delay. It was, by one account, ninety-six degrees by noon on that day, and still eighty-six an hour after sunset. There was nothing that could be done about the heat, of course, but the blame for the confusion and delay that also plagued that day's march could be placed squarely upon Jackson's shoulders. 
Stonewall's bad habit of keeping his plans to himself and of telling his lieutenants only as much as he felt they needed to know made the march much tougher than it needed to be and caused a particular problem with A.P. Hill, who was serving under Jackson for the first time. And so August 8th wasn't a good day for Stonewall's vaunted foot cavalry. Jackson succeeded in getting only half his men across the Rapidan, and as a result his command was badly strung out along the line of march, rather than being concentrated in preparation for launching an attack on the 9th. In addition, most of the Confederate infantry were exhausted from the day's march through the intense heat, which didn't promise to let up on the morrow. And so Jackson, who was irritated with his command's lack of progress on the 8th, would have had quite a problem pushing ahead and engaging Banks on Saturday, August 9th, as planned. But Banks, who was apparently itching for a fight in order to win back some lost grace, actually advanced south from Culpeper to meet Stonewall. After the fact, there was considerable dispute about what Pope's orders to Banks said. Banks later insisted that he was directed to attack the enemy if the rebels approached Culpeper, while Pope claimed that Banks was supposed to avoid bringing on a general engagement until the rest of the army came up. It's possible that both Pope and Banks altered their recollections afterward in order to defend their actions, but whatever actually happened, the blame for the situation on August 9th has to rest with Pope who should have sent clear, written instructions to Banks, since, as it was, there was enough wiggle room in the verbal orders he received for Banks to conclude that he could advance south against Stonewall. At any rate, Banks received his orders about 10 a.m. that Saturday and then began moving his troops forward to support a brigade of infantry and some 1,200 cavalry that he had positioned about 10 miles south of Culpeper at a place called Cedar Mountain. Those federal cavalry were commanded by George Bayard, while the brigade of infantry was led by Samuel Crawford. Crawford had moved up to support Bayard the previous afternoon, and on Saturday morning, all indications were that heavy rebel forces were heading their way. Both officers were relieved, therefore, to see the rest of Banks' troops begin arriving on the scene around noon. All told, Banks' force at Cedar Mountain would number about 9,000 men, including Bayard's cavalry. In his book, Rebel Yell, The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson, S.C. Gwynn writes that, quote, The battlefield at Cedar Mountain was simply laid out. Union and Confederate troops faced each other in battle lines that ran roughly north to south for about two miles. The opposing lines were on average about half a mile apart. Most of the terrain was open, cornfields, wheat fields, and pasture land. On the south, a large conical green hill loomed up over the open, gently swelling landscape. The northern extremities of both lines disappeared in patches of thick woods. At about 3 p.m., the now customary artillery fight started. For about two hours, the two sides pounded each other. Though the Union had superior weapons, Jackson, the artillerist and former artillery instructor, got the better of his adversary, carefully choosing his gun positions on the mountain itself and behind his lines, to create a devastating crossfire. Because of the confusion and delay that had attended Friday's march, Jackson's plan for Saturday seems to have been simply to probe towards the advanced federal position at Cedar Mountain and see what was there. 
On Saturday morning, therefore, Stonewall had sent Dick Yule orders to advance and engage the enemy to his front. Yule got his lead brigade, Jubal Early's, underway about 8 a.m. By that time, with the sun well up, the day was already hot, with the temperature above 80 degrees. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it would reach 98 degrees. The blistering heat on August 9th would take its toll on both sides at Cedar Mountain, with many accounts of men simply dropping from exhaustion or prostrated by heat stroke. As Early, whom his troops called Old Jube, advanced to make contact with the Yankee horsemen known to be to his front, he detached the 44th Virginia and six companies of the 52nd Virginia to watch his flank so that the enemy cavalry wouldn't surprise him. That was nearly a quarter of his command, and these absent troops would be sorely missed in the coming engagement. By mid-morning, Early's forward movement had brought him into contact with the Union vedettes, or mounted sentries. At that point, Early pushed out his skirmish line, but halted his advance for a while to observe the enemy position. Then late in the morning, Yule instructed Early to move forward and secure the crossroads where the road from Madison Courthouse angled into the Culpeper Road from the northwest. As Old Jube led his troops toward the crossroads, he moved a couple of cannon to the right to take up position at the foot of Cedar Mountain. And just as an aside, but Cedar Mountain was also known as Slaughter's Mountain and is sometimes referred to by that name in a few accounts of the battle. It was named after Captain William Slaughter, who had served in the Revolutionary War, and in 1862 his descendants still lived and farmed in the area. But most accounts of the battle here call it Cedar Mountain. Early's guns, which were joined by other Confederate artillery, soon forced the Federal horsemen back. By that time, though, it was clear to Yule and Early that the Yankee cavalry wasn't alone. They were supported by infantry. And in addition, it looked as if more Union troops were in the process of coming up. As we mentioned already, after his command's awful march on the 8th, Stonewall Jackson hadn't expected to fight a battle on the, on the 9th after all. But by shortly before noon on Saturday, all indications were that the Federals were unexpectedly preparing to make a fight of it at Cedar Mountain. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just before noon, Stonewall Jackson arrived on the scene and met with Yule at a farmhouse just to the rear, where they quickly developed a plan of action. Yule was to take Isaac Trimble's brigade and also the Louisiana Brigade, now commanded by former New Orleans police chief Henry Forno, and march them to the north shoulder of Cedar Mountain, where they would take up position overlooking the southern portion of the battlefield. Meanwhile, Early would continue to press up the Culpeper Road toward the center of the enemy position. Early would be supported on his left by Charles Winder's division as it came up. Winder's line of advance would allow him to pressure the Federal right. Stonewall had every expectation that his attack would succeed since his two lead divisions, Ewell's and Winder's, easily outnumbered the Yankees that he saw in their front, and he knew that A.P. Hill's troops were coming up behind Winder's to lend more weight to the attack if needed. Before the day was over, Stonewall would bring about 15,000 men into the fight here at Cedar Mountain. Jackson was in no hurry to attack, since it would take some time for Winder to come up and for Trimble to get into position. He sent orders for Early not to advance until he heard from Winder that everything was ready. While he waited for Winder to come up, Early shifted his troops so as to avoid observation by some enemy horsemen across the way. Early pushed, prodded, and swore and cursed his men through the forest that shielded their movement. Early's 1,500 men advanced out of the trees, moved across to Farm Lane, and formed a line of battle just north of the clapboard-sided Crittenden farmhouse. Realizing that his maneuvering so far had gained him an advantage over the Federals, who lay beyond the rolling countryside of the farm, Early advanced his men to the crest of a rise ahead. As the rebels appeared across the top of the ridge, though, the Union artillery, positioned 1,600 yards away, opened up on them, and forced Early's men to withdraw back to the west side of the hill. Meanwhile, on Early's right, Yule, with Trimble's and Forno's brigades, moved off the Culpeper Road, marched south, and took up a position on the north shoulder of Cedar Mountain. Well to their left, and far below their position on the mountainside, they could clearly make out Early's troops. In his book, Stonewall Jackson at Cedar Mountain, Robert K. Crick points out that, quote, the virtually unopposed occupation of Cedar Mountain by Southern men and guns produced consequences difficult to exaggerate. The absolute dominance of the position there must have been apparent to the rawest private in either army. In Cedar Mountain, the Confederates held an impervious bastion for defense and a formidable artillery emplacement to support the offensive. Just after 2 p.m., Winder's division arrived on the battlefield and began the arduous and time-consuming task of moving up on Early's left. To the rear, the six brigades of A.P. Hill's Light Division stretched along the hot and dusty road for miles. Hill's men could hear the boom of artillery ahead and realized the fight had been joined, although Jackson had told Hill nothing of his battle plan. Although the rebels held a decided advantage in manpower, Banks had made skillful use of the terrain to mask the size and positions of his smaller force. 
Christopher Auger's division was posted south of the Culpeper Road, for the most part screened from observation by a large cornfield. With soldiers dropping along the wayside due to the brutal heat, the two brigades of Alpheus Williams' division hurried into the cover of the thick woods north of the road, and from a ridge north of Cedar Run, the Yankee batteries continued to rain shells upon the Confederates as the rebels deployed astride the Culpeper Road. While Jackson and Winder, who had taken the field despite being ill, were preoccupied with bringing artillery forward to counter the enemy guns, Winder's division deployed north of the road. Neither Winder nor his brigade commanders, Thomas S. Garnett, William B. Tolliver, and Charles Ronald, were aware that William's division of Federals lay just across a wheat field to the east. For two hours, the Union and Confederate batteries traded salvos that caused a number of casualties on both sides. Eventually, the rebels began to get the better of the artillery duel, but not without considerable loss. The day's highest-ranking casualty was to be Charles Winder. As Tracy mentioned, Winder had been seriously ill for several days, but he took the field on August 9th with his men. Winder was helping direct artillery fire when he was struck by a shell that mortally wounded him, tearing through his left arm and mangling his side terribly. The loss of Winder had serious repercussions for the rebels. Tolliver, who took command of Winder's division, was unable to locate Stonewall Jackson. Unaware of the overall battle plan, Tolliver focused his attention south of the road where his own brigade had earlier been shifting to cover Early's left. Meanwhile, Early's right had been bolstered by Edward L. Thomas's Georgians, the first of A.P. Hill's brigades to arrive on the battlefield. And with the approach of Hill, Jackson was preparing to launch his belated advance when at 5.30 p.m. the Federals beat him to the punch. Following Banks' orders, Auger started forward through the cornfield south of the Culpeper Road with two of his three brigades, under John Geary and Henry Prince. Exposed to the fire of the southern guns on Cedar Mountain off to their left, and musketry from Tolliver, Early, and Thomas to their front, the Union troops pressed resolutely forward. Auger was wounded and was replaced by George S. Green, but the assault by his brigades had preempted an attack by Stonewall's right. Shortly before 6 p.m., a more dire Yankee threat materialized north of the road. Breaking from the cover of the woods east of Winder's division, three of the four regiments in Samuel Crawford's brigade came surging through the wheat field that separated them from the Confederate left. Startled by the unexpected Union onslaught and still in some disarray in the wake of Winder's wounding, the rebel troops were slow to respond to the threat. Garnett's brigade managed to unleash three deadly volleys, but within minutes the cheering blue-clad soldiers had pierced the Confederate line. The left flank of Garnett's brigade caved in, and a portion of the celebrated Stonewall Brigade was likewise thrown back in some disorder. Some of Crawford's Federals battered their way, in vicious close-quarters combat, through the woods north of the road, while others charged south into Tolliver's left flank. Renewed pressure from Augur's division against the rebel line south of the road soon jeopardized Jackson's entire position. With the disaster in the making, Stonewall spurred his horse into the mounting chaos, cajoling and imploring his men to rally and stand fast. 
So rarely had Jackson been compelled to draw his sword that he found the blade had rusted in its scabbard, and so the story goes, he was forced to unhook the still-sheathed weapon from his belt in order to flourish it somewhat awkwardly over his head. The influence of their revered commander steadied the rebel ranks, even as a lack of reserves crippled Banks' ability to exploit the Federal's success. With units hopelessly intermingled and casualties mounting rapidly, Crawford's charge began to run out of steam. At that crucial moment, more of A.P. Hill's troops came storming forward at the double quick, and the tide of battle turned. As Lawrence O'Brien Branch led his brigade of Confederates against Crawford's front, James J. Archer and William Dorsey Pender swung their brigades of rebels against Crawford's right. With more than half of his troops dead, wounded, or taken prisoner, Crawford could do little more than beat a hasty retreat back across the wheat field. The 10th Maine, which was held in reserve during Crawford's initial assault, along with units of George H. Gordon's brigade, suffered severely as it tried to stem the rebel counterattack. A squadron of the 1st Pennsylvania Cavalry Regiment charged down the Culpeper Road, but was hurled back. With darkness settling over the battlefield, Banks retreated toward Culpeper, where one of Irvin McDowell's divisions had arrived too late to play a part in the fighting at Cedar Mountain. Although the rebels had carried the day, the efficient Yankee artillery was still a force to be reckoned with. When some Confederate guns, commanded by Captain William J. Pegram, opened upon the retreating Federals from atop an open knoll, the Union gunners caught the intrepid young Virginian in a deadly crossfire and silenced his guns. After advancing a mile beyond the battlefield, Jackson called off his pursuit. Cedar Mountain had been a sharp, hard fight, and the battlefield bore witness to it. Though the infantry battle had lasted less than 90 minutes, more than 3,000 soldiers had fallen. 1,786 Federals had been killed or wounded, and 617 taken prisoner. The Confederates lost 1,376 men killed or wounded, and only 42 captured. As always, Jackson wanted to follow up his victory by striking the Federals again, but with more of Pope's army coming up, Stonewall would soon be colossally outnumbered, and he knew it. And so on August 11th, after the Union and Confederate dead at Cedar Mountain were buried under flags of truce, Jackson began withdrawing back across the Rapidan to Gordonsville. Cedar Mountain, like most of Stonewall's battles, had been no tactical gem. In his book, Return to Bull Run, John J. Hennessy writes of how, quote, At first blush, it seemed that Jackson had gained little for the steep price paid at Cedar Mountain. His march to the field had been too slow, his tactics sometimes careless. But despite his mandated retreat from Cedar Mountain, Jackson and Lee gained much from the battle. Cedar Mountain had taken some of the starch out of Pope. It would prove to be a decisive moment in the campaign. Before Cedar Mountain, Pope had been bold in his promises, suggesting repeatedly that the Confederate army was in much danger due to him. Now, in the wake of that small but bloody battle, the tenor of both Pope's and Halleck's dispatches changed. After Cedar Mountain, Pope and Halleck had clearly abandoned the initiative, and though they surely had every intention otherwise, they would never get it back.
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Stonewall Jackson at Cedar Mountain by Robert K. Crick. Cedar Mountain is a truly interesting fight, but kind of surprisingly, there's not really a good, balanced, book-length treatment devoted to it, at least that we're aware of. Crick's book, which we're recommending here, is, as you might guess from its title, heavily skewed toward covering the Confederate side of things at Cedar Mountain in some detail, but with the federal movements and actions painted most of the time only in broad, vague brushstrokes. Other than that, Crick's book is excellent, and so we don't really have any qualms about making it our recommendation for this episode. So that's Stonewall Jackson at Cedar Mountain by Robert K. Crick. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then a quick, but deeply heartfelt, thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Dr. Matthew S., Una, and Jerry. And then just a quick, but important, programming note. But with Thanksgiving coming up here in the States, and with travel plans, and with being with family, we are taking the next two weekends off. So the next new episode of the podcast will be out the weekend of December 3rd and 4th. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next for the next episode as we continue our march towards Second Manassas. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.